Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible or can't use the pew Bible in front of you, I know the words are a little small. There's also an insert in your bulletin. I uh, forgot once again to make the announcement that right now the county in red, and just as a precaution, remember we won't be passing the plate, but you can give your offerings in the back or here when you exit. Thankful for... I love that last hymn. Do you remember when we first tried to learn that hymn? It was it was hard to learn, and we couldn't sing it. And now more voices are there. It's fuller. It's such a great hymn. So thank you, Brenda, for that. And I hope you enjoy that song also. It's, it's written perfectly. Um, thankful for where our, our, our teens are. Jacob is uh, taking the youth on Wednesday nights through the book of Colossians, which is fantastic. They're involved in even a, like a distance learning class for biblical interpretation on Monday nights, and so some of them are, and so I'm, I'm very thankful that he's here and the things are going the way they are. As I've uh, probably mentioned to you before, one of the benefits of preaching expositionally through whole books of the Bible is that it keeps your preacher honest. What I mean by that is that I don't get to cherry-pick my favorite topics. I don't get to skip over things that are difficult. Eventually, I'll have to deal with everything in the Bible, one way or the other. So when we come to harder sections of Scripture, um, I have to preach them. Texts like the first 12 verses of Mark 10 where Jesus addresses divorce and remarriage. Texts like these can be difficult for several reasons. The main reason Jesus is teaching on these things may be hard to take is first and foremost, Jesus speaks from the perspective of heaven not from earth. Jesus speaks on marriage as the one who created it and had certain intentions for it that most people don't have. Um, This is the truth, so naturally it's instinctively rejected by fallen people. We want to define love. We don't want somebody else greater than us to define it for us. That's why we come up with phrases like, love is love. No, God is love. We don't even know what love is love really means what we want to do what is immediately convenient for us we want to fulfill our own desires no matter what it costs us and no matter what it costs those that love us but then and i think this is even more the case maybe in our current context in america there are the difficulties that come with this teaching relative to our own individual situations so um, those that have been through divorce or have been remarried may struggle with Jesus' teaching here, wondering what the implications are for them. Uh, Texts like these can be very hurtful to those who have suffered a great deal uh, as a result of a very difficult marriage, as well as those who might be in currently a very difficult marriage and feel trapped and don't know what to do. So what does our Savior and our Shepherd have to say about these things? The one who loves us with an everlasting and perfect love. How does Jesus address these things? He continues here in Mark 10 to teach the crowds, but in particular his disciples, about what it means to follow him. And here he not only addresses how the religious leaders in Israel, those to whom the people looked for direction, irresponsibly or all too conveniently handle the scriptures in general, with their view of marriage and divorce as the immediate occasion here, but also why God created marriage. And what it was intended to display, designed to display, as a means of reminding his disciples that the gospel he has come to proclaim means everything, to everything. And so let's pray and we'll begin. Father, I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit for the task of preaching Mark 10, the first 12 verses this morning to this congregation here. Father, for your name's sake, for your gospel and your son and those you mean to save and those you mean to edify and convict and strengthen, Lord, please fill me up so that nothing of me gets in the way. I ask and pray for these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and for your people. Amen. So before I read, as of 1910, 10% of U.S. marriages ended in divorce, only 10. In 1948, it was 25%. By 2011, and I didn't look up what it is now, although we can reasonably assume it hasn't gone down. By 2011, the divorce rate in America was more than 50%. So over half of the marriages in the U.S. end in divorce. Way back in the mid-20th century, you know, the last century we were in, 
when the divorce rate was just 25%, this was said. There was a Harvard sociologist named Pitram Sorkin pointed out that no civilization can survive for long when one-fourth of its marriage units are disintegrating. And now we're at over 50. Marriage is not uh, normally held in high esteem today, not really culturally. I would say that many young people in particular disdain um, what, what we would say is the traditional institution of marriage altogether. Um, many decide to cohabitate with, without any plans of ever getting married. And I, I can't wait for a young man to try that with one of my daughters. <laughs> Test drive my daughter. Are you a clown? No. But um, many decide to cohabitate without getting married. There aren't any cultural or societal prohibitions anymore against this. In other words, it's not even really thought of as, as odd. In fact, it's not only considered normal, I think it's considered wise by, by, by many people. In fact, it's not uncommon to hear that it's better to live together before you get married because then you know what you're getting yourself into. Even Christian couples will do this. And, and sometimes Christian parents or a church will encourage it because it sounds like wisdom. Now, as in this, that absolutely ignores the research that shows the divorce rate is higher in couples that cohabitate before they get married. And, and look, that isn't to say that if, if you cohabitate before you get married that the situation is hopeless. It's, it's, it's not that. Nor should we pretend that, that we automatically know everything that's going on when two people live together. I mean, we can assume, but we don't really actually know. And listen, do, do we really think that only... Um, Couples who cohabitate are the ones sleeping together, that if you don't live together, you, you wouldn't be doing that. So we, we can't assume those things. But what do we make of all this? What should be our response to this as the church as, uh, and of these things to those inside the church? The issue comes back to the question, why is marriage so important to God? Forget what people think about it for a while. Why is this so important? Why is marriage so sacred in the eyes of God? Is it because God likes things tidy and is obtuse and doesn't know how difficult marriage and relationships can be and, and it, he just would rather we not do embarrassing or shameful things in our culture? Or is there a much deeper reason that actually reveals God's gracious heart and intentions and design for us as his creation? If a couple cohabitates, are they beyond God's grace is divorce a black mark on a person from which they can never recover Are divorce and adultery unforgivable. Should a person carry the shame of such a thing around for the rest of their lives is divorce ever permissible. And what about remarriage? Well, divorce and remarriage have been hot button issues since well before the 20th century. It was in the time of Jesus. The Pharisees knew this and were always looking for the right opportunity to get Jesus out of the way. This time, the issue they use is divorce. Look at verse 1, finally, in chapter 10. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Jesus continues his journey towards Jerusalem in chapter 10, where he knew betrayal and execution awaited. He's fixed on his purpose, so he left Capernaum way back in 933, headed south to Judea, beyond the Jordan here in verse 1, meaning he's uh, more on the eastern side where John the Baptist had been baptizing people before he was beheaded. But even there, the crowds find him again. So his fame was not exclusive to Galilee where the crowds were so big, sometimes Jesus and his disciples couldn't even move. But even further south in Judea, people rushed to meet him. But by moving closer to Jerusalem, Jesus is also moving closer to the center of opposition from the Pharisees. And they are ready when he gets to their turf. In verse 2 we read, And Pharisees came up and in order, to in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Is it lawful? They are not asking because they genuinely want to know his views on marriage and divorce. Mark tells us they were testing him, meaning they wanted to trap him. But what is the trap here exactly? I agree with R.C. Sproul that there are most likely two possibilities here. The first kind of trap would uh, is that if Jesus replied that it was not lawful for a man to divorce his wife and marry another, he would be placing himself in direct opposition to Herod Antipas, whom we know now in Mark 
the issue of divorce and remarriage is a little bit of a hot button issue for him because he had John the Baptist beheaded over this issue. And so the Pharisees would be sure to take that information right back to Herod, hoping the same fate would fall on Jesus. But it also it might have been a theological issue. Rather, there was an ongoing controversy among the rabbis at this time regarding marriage and divorce. It had to do with a dispute over how one understood the Old Testament legislation in Deuteronomy 24. Let me read just the first one through four, the first part of verse four to you here. This is Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. God said that a violation of the rules on divorce was an abomination. What the rabbis in the time of Jesus disagreed over was what counted as indecency. In what we just read in Deuteronomy 24, or in some versions it says uncleanness or the unclean thing in the woman that could give the husband grounds to divorce her. This text doesn't explicitly say, Deuteronomy 24 doesn't explicitly say that it was adultery. The penalty for that is very clearly given in Leviticus 20, verse 10, it's execution. So if it was the wife, if a man's wife committed adultery, he didn't have to worry about a divorce. He just could have her stoned to death. This was still being practiced at the time of Jesus' birth. And Joseph could have had Mary stoned for becoming pregnant before the consummation of their betrothal. But as you know from Matthew 1, he wanted to put her away privately. He was being merciful to her. We know that they brought a woman to Jesus who was caught in adultery and wanted to stone her because that's what the law said. And Jesus was merciful to her. But in Deuteronomy 24, it seems like he's talking about a different kind of thing than adultery. And there were two different views among the rabbis, the conservatives and the liberals, as there have always been and always will be, especially in matters of interpreting Scripture. The conservative school... Um, the Shammai school said the only thing that would justify a divorce was a shameful act of sexual infidelity. That's it. That's how they interpreted Deuteronomy 24. The liberal school, the Hillel school, took a much wider view of the uncleanness, uh, the indecency mentioned in Deuteronomy 24. They said it referred to anything a wife did that embarrassed, bothered, disgraced, or displeased her husband, including burning a meal. Liberals are nice. Right? They're, they're, they're the soft-hearted. So, the Hillel school permitted divorce for just about any reason. By the time Jesus was here, the prevailing view of the Jews at that time was the liberal one of the Hillel school, which is why Herod Antipas was able to get away with his divorce in the eyes of the Jews expediency determined theology. So the purpose of this trap from the Pharisees was that if Jesus sided with the liberals, the Pharisees would suddenly all be conservative and say Jesus went against the law of Moses. If he took the conservative view, uh, they would all become liberals and say he was going against public opinion and against Herod. So there's really no way Jesus can win. His answer didn't matter. So it was not a pursuit of truth, but a question with a certain agenda, which is often behind Questions about scripture, not all the time, but a lot of times this is what there's an agenda behind questions of something in God's word. The thing was, you think the Pharisees would know by now is that Jesus couldn't have cared less about their opinion or public opinion or anyone's opinion for that matter. In John four, he revealed that it was his food to do the will of his father. Right. So look at verse three. He answered them. What did Moses command you. He, he points the Pharisees back to the text, to the Word of God, but his wording here is very interesting. Command, he says, verse 4, they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. This is how the Pharisees interpreted Deuteronomy 24. They're reading it as a command to get divorced, that this is what God wanted. Their interpretation is incorrect, and Jesus goes on to show them here that they're handling the Word of God incorrectly and irresponsibly. 
So we pick it up in verse 5. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, He wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, when you read Deuteronomy 24, Moses is not actually commanding divorce per se. That's how the Pharisees understood it. And so Jesus uses their word to show them how they're wrong. Moses' words in Deuteronomy 24 speak of a concession by God. We find out from Jesus here, because human hearts are so hard. Divorce is not what God desires, and it certainly isn't what he ever commanded to take place. God chose to make a concession because people's hearts are hard. They do what they want to do. And then sometimes situations are so horrible, he provides a way out. But not because he's okay with divorce. He is not. Why not? It's in verse 9. What God has joined together, let not men separate. What God has joined together. That's who's uniting two people when they get married, beloved. Not themselves primarily, but God. Any marriage. Any heterosexual legitimate marriage that takes place. Jesus goes all the way back to first things, to creation, to reveal God's actual design for marriage. Marriage had a purpose. That purpose is why God holds marriage so sacred. We've made it all about love and romance, which are very important things if you hope to have an enduring marriage. They are vital, but we need to remember God's design goes way deeper than mere feelings that we have for someone else, even when those feelings are stronger than we have for anyone else. There's something deeper that God was doing than this. That is an avenue to what He designed, not the design, right? He made us male and female so that we would join together and become one flesh. That's why He designed our bodies the way that they did. So, by the way, it is impossible for two males or two females to do that. So, Homosexual marriage is a contradiction in terms. It's, it's an oxymoron. It couldn't happen. It literally can't happen. Two males and two females can't become one flesh as God designed. But here's the thing. That bringing together of a man and a woman of two flesh into one through the intimacy of marriage happens by the power and by the decree of God. When they join together, God is doing something that a human being cannot do On their own. Christy and I are spiritually no longer two people, but we're one spiritually through the physical act of marriage. I set my affections, if you can call them that, the first time I ever saw her, but I set my affections on her the moment I first saw her. I can tell you exactly what was going on. I can tell you what she was wearing. She was wearing a long white sleeve blouse with like a like a mint green vest, dress, skirt type thing. She was brought up on the platform at First Baptist Church of Heath to be recognized for her high school graduation. I was one year out of high school. I was sitting with the girl who was my girlfriend at that time, not one year, a few years out. I was sitting with the girl who was my girlfriend at that time and realized in that moment that she was not God's will for me. (laughs) This girl was God's will for me, and she must be mine. That's what I thought in my in my head. But she is mine, and I am hers. And every day, I don't get often the chance to say these things in a sermon, but every day I think I love her more. She is a part of me, and I am a part of her. Right? We're one. If I didn't have her, I wouldn't know what to do. And I can tell you right now, in the providence of God, if it is not for this woman, I am not here right now. I'm not a preacher. I'm probably not going to church. She is a rock of God's grace in my life. We'll be married 19 years this October. October 12th, Christy is aging like a fine wine. I am aging like a fine milk, really. (laughs) So that's neither here nor there. But my point is this. 
I saw her. I loved her. I was crazy about her. I wanted to marry her, be with her forever. She is my beloved. She always will be. I proposed. She accepted. But all along, unbeknownst to us, it was God who brought us together and made us one flesh. In His eyes, that's what we became through marriage. And this bringing together is so sacred, it's not meant to be separated by any human, regardless of the reason. But, in remarkable mercy, because we're so frail, precisely because our hearts are so hard, God concedes divorce explicitly in two cases biblically, I believe, just two, but not because he is for or condones divorce, but because sometimes here where things are fallen, they're beyond reconciliation and healing. Sometimes things here can't be mended. And our hearts are just too hard to trust Him in the fallout of these things. Divorce is a tragedy. But, beloved, it is not an irrevocable tragedy. And we will come to that. Okay? I believe God, uh, in His sovereign mercy, concedes the option of divorce in cases of infidelity or if an unbelieving spouse leaves a believing spouse. And I don't really think the point of Scripture is really to try to, to give Grounds for divorce necessarily. God is not for divorce, right? I believe, however, these are two situations or there are two situations where God has said in those cases, divorce is permissible when reconciliation cannot happen. But the goal should always be reconciliation because it is God who has joined two people in marriage and he does not desire that they would separate. And, and really think about it. How, how many people do you think you can become one flesh with, right? I'm going to expand on this a little bit and give some more, I hope, helpful details. But I do think we need to lay that groundwork that this is God's design. That's his desire. You know, how can he, how can that be his will? And then it's like God commands that people not murder. That's what he desires. People murder. So there is a kind of will in God that isn't, that doesn't work like his ultimate will that he decrees sovereignly that this will happen and this king will go here and that person will go there and Proverbs um, 16 and James 4 and, and things like this. There's another level to God's will in which he desires something that he doesn't bring about necessarily. So as we launch into this here, we're already into it, but hear me out for just a moment, okay? It is my responsibility to preach the whole counsel of God. I'm bound to do that by the Spirit and by the Word. And I am not saying that to apologize for God's word here. Okay, that's not my intent in letting you know that. He is the truth and he speaks the truth. I just don't want anyone to think that I am picking on them or their situation this morning. Okay, whether it's in the past or you feel like it's coming or it's happening currently. In reality, with almost no exceptions, I don't really know anyone's or any couple's whole story in here. I, I really don't for the vast majority of you, really. So I could be talking about specific folks or I could not be talking about anybody. I really don't know. I say that so that you might understand I'm not preaching this to hurt anyone or single anyone out or in a backhanded way, rather than having the courage to say it to your face, tell you something I wouldn't say to your face. I'm not saying these things to hurt anyone and I don't want to make anybody feel ashamed. All right, I've never had a divorce, but if my life was rolled out, the amount of shame in it would be too much for me to ever stand in front of you again, the things I've done in my past. So I'm not, that's not what I'm doing. Divorce and all the pain that comes with it and the lasting effects are enough hurt anyway. You don't need me piling on. And Jesus isn't piling on this morning. Please believe me. We'll come to this, but that's not what he's doing. I think the reason God wants preachers to preach everything, to preach the whole counsel of God is for the good of his people, not their harm, not their punishment. If you are his child, he loves you right now. Whatever situation you're in, have been in or will be in, he loves you. Number one. All right. He loves you and he will give you peace and rest. His will for you is what he knows is perfect and good for you and will make you whole. That's His will for you. To wash our sins away, not to hold them over our heads. 
Right. Such um, transgressions, disregard for his word and his design are precisely why the work of Jesus on the cross is so necessary. He was dying for real, actual sins that went against God's design and God's word, including divorce and in some cases remarriage. So this, the grace of Jesus is here for you, beloved, in full. So if this is difficult, if um, some of you, um, please try to hear even in this text through the lens of the gospel, through which Jesus forgives us, restores us, recreates us, makes us new to such a degree that we are not defined by our sins or our shortcomings, but by His blood and His righteousness. So don't bail in your heart before we're all the way through this morning. Don't bail out. Some of you may have been divorced. Some of you have probably been remarried. Maybe some of you are living together and not married or lived together before you were married. Listen. I know the stories that we walk in here with are way deeper and more complex than anyone can really understand or explain from the outside. I will not categorically judge you and your situation as though my insight into your reasons is exhaustive. It is not. I don't want to condone sin. I I just want to emphasize the cross, which is the only place the justice of such a holy and magnificent God is satisfied and it is satisfied and the fact that God gave a concession here when marriage is so sacred means that at the very least this is such a complex situation rooted in the human heart that he says elsewhere is beyond our understanding that God must really be full of mercy it must be true that mercy triumphs over judgment So I'm not going to presume I have your heart and why you did what you did all figured out. I do not. That's not why I'm preaching this passage. And if Jesus does not define you by your past or your actions, then his church has no business doing so either. We need the wisdom and compassion of Jesus as his church, beloved. Again, I'm not here to grease the wheels of this text or soften it. It says what it says. It means what it means. We must submit to God's word. But the same Jesus teaching us here is on his way to the cross to die for us. And so we're going to rest in that. All right. We'll rest in that. God's declaration here is simple and direct. What he has joined together, we have no business separating. Even in the sake or case of these concessions, we still can't hold marriage lightly in our minds. It is not God's ultimate will that marriages separate. He has a purpose in it. That separation will make impossible to see. That's what will come to at the end. Christian couples that have problems, and I know of none that don't, must be willing to work through these things to reconciliation. There are two clear concessions, I believe, in Scripture, but they are very specific. And irreconcilable differences is just not one of them. So when Christ has reconciled us to God, We are called to be reconciled to one another, and that's a much shorter trip, even when it's hard. So Jesus isn't trying to lessen the sanctity of marriage. He's actually going back beyond where they were going to the beginning. He's holding it up for us to see, not just so we know God's will, but so we also know God's mercy when about everything we do falls short of His glory. Right? Look at 10 through 12 again when He's with the disciples and in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter and he said to them whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her and if she divorces her husband and marries another she commits adultery now there are still in every different church probably different views on this even though it seems very clear there are some churches that don't permit divorce on any grounds wouldn't advocate it on any grounds saying that here Jesus is overriding Moses's concession the problem with that would be the parallel passage of this one in Matthew 19, 8 and 9, where Matthew records Jesus in full saying, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, if she has not been divorced for sexual immorality, but for some other reason we could imply, she commits adultery. So Jesus then teaches here that divorce is permissible or is conceded by God to occur if there's been sexual 
immorality. That believer that was cheated on is then free. That's how Jesus interpreted Deuteronomy 24. So most churches agree that divorce is permissible in cases of marital infidelity. Again, the only other clear concession in Scripture comes in 1 Corinthians 7.15 where Paul teaches that if a non-Christian spouse deserts a Christian spouse, that believer is no longer bound to that marriage. And very quickly, I would say this. Beloved, we need to remember to pray for and be merciful to Christians who are married to unbelievers. Particularly wives married to unbelieving husbands since they are still called to submit even to Him. And so to remain faithful and trust Jesus in that is probably more difficult than we can imagine unless we're in that situation. So just please don't forget the people in our midst that may be struggling with that and the burden they carry. Some would say that if a cheating spouse repents, that the innocent spouse is then required to stay in that marriage. I don't know that I agree with that. The concession was given without any qualifications. We lay unnecessary guilt on an already hurting spouse if we require something that Jesus did not in this case. A Christian spouse who was cheated on could forgive the spouse that betrayed them and still not be bound to that person or have to be bound to that person in, uh, in marriage. The breaking was the fault of the adulterer, not the offended party. So the church should not make the victim suffer twice, I don't think. Again, there's no need to subtly pressure people who have been hurt when Scripture has given them the concession to end something in that case. What about marriage and divorce in cases of abuse? Right? Can a, divorce, can, can a wife, and I'll, I'll speak of though, the wife is the one being abused here because it's more common. I'm not saying it never happens the other way. I'm just saying it's more common. Can a wife divorce her husband if she's being abused? Does the text give that, um, that concession specifically? No. But, so is it giving the concession? That, no, not specifically. But that, I think, brings us back to precisely what was intended in the law when God spoke of indecency in a marriage. But I would say this at the very least. Let me say this. Okay, I'm not counseling a wife who is being abused to remain in that home, and I'm not binding her conscience either. I don't think I have any right to do that. I'm not telling her she must stay. All right, what the church needs to do for one in that situation is rally around them, bear their burden, and help them. We need to defend her, get her out of that home, get her out of there, Unless and until that man repents and proves in that case over the long haul that it will never happen again. But listen, as the church, we need to figure out a way to get her out of that home. And to safety. And to help her figure it out. And you might say, how in the world will we do that? I don't know. But we can't just sit here while she and her kids, presumably, are getting beaten. We can't do that, church. We can't do that. We can't just say, I'll pray for you. How about you block a punch for me? Right? So we can't just leave her in this case. I don't know what we would do, but that's what I'm saying. We have to figure it out as the church. We have to figure it out. We can't leave a woman and or her children to get beaten, is what I'm saying. The other question brought up by this text is, can divorced Christians remarry? In the two cases we've seen, at least, yes, I do believe Jesus teaches here that a spouse who's been cheated on and chose to leave the unfaithful spouse has the concession to remarry as one who was deserted by an unbelieving spouse. I think he or she can do the same. By the way, none of the teaching on divorce or remarriage applies to widows or widowers. Don't bear that burden. Also, when you're already dealing with the loss of one that you loved, there needs to be no burden there in cases of remarriage. Now, Let's say in your past you've been divorced and it wasn't over infidelity and you remarried. Or maybe you were the unfaithful one and your spouse left you and now you have remarried. You read this text and you say, it sounds like Jesus is saying, I'm committing adultery. So, must you now get a divorce of this wife and go back to her husband and go back to the spouse you left or that left you because you were unfaithful if they'll take you back, of course. No. No. 
for one thing, realize it's not one of the concessions that if you got married after you committed adultery or have been divorced for a reason other than adultery, there's not a concession there that now you can divorce your current spouse. That is not something God concedes. That's not what he would have you do. Beloved, listen to me for a minute. Please hear this. God does not require us to set everything in this world aright. That is not what he requires of us to fix everything and make everything clean and balance the ledger. That is not what he calls us to do. Only Jesus can do that. And Jesus will do that. Sometimes the only thing that can be done is to fall on the mercy of Jesus when we've made a mess. Sometimes that's all you can do. Lord, be merciful to me. I don't know what to do. I messed up. Help me. Beloved, he's a good shepherd. Trust him. Trust him. But also, oftentimes, a lot of these things were done in our past before we were even believers. Before we even really knew Jesus at all. And if that's the case, listen, that person died when you were born again. Don't carry them around with you. That's not you anymore. That's not who you are anymore. All that has been washed away. A new you was born in that person's place. The guy that was born August 16, 1975 at St. Anne's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, doesn't exist anymore in the spiritual sense. The person you were before is the one that got a divorce. Not the person you are now in the eyes of God, but even more so, God's love for you and His ability to restore you and make you whole are not limited by your past. God is not limited or restricted in you because of your past. And again, He doesn't require us to make everything right. Much of what we've done, we will never be able to make right. Does that mean we aren't forgiven? No, beloved, it does not. It means our world needs healed, and I do too. I can't go back. I, I can't go back to girls I dated that I hurt and ask for forgiveness. I'm married now. I don't think my wife would like that very much. Me striking up conversations with girls I was with before. I can't take back things I stole when I was 15. I, I, so, so, so what do I do? Did I act like that stuff never happened? No, it happened. I've sinned all my life. I've been an absolute fool most of my life. What do I do? The gospel is not, now you can go back and make everything right. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, Jesus has made everything right. Trust Him. Fall on Him. Believe Him. He loves you. I'm so thankful He loves sinners I need that more than anything. Some things we can and should make right if we can. Absolutely. Absolutely when we can. But in a fallen world, sometimes there are wounds that cannot be healed. There are relationships that simply cannot be restored. We can't go back because of sin, because of the curse. But Jesus Christ has overcome the world. Believer, he overcame the world in which you and I make an absolute mess. And neither our past or our sinfulness determines our destiny, believer. One day, He will wipe away the tears and the shame, too. We wait for that day. We wait for that day. So, beloved, before you fall apart or throw your hands in the air over this teaching from your Savior, please let me preach the gospel to you here. All right? Jesus is answering the Pharisees here. That's the first thing we need to remember. The Pharisees mishandle the Word of God. They don't really understand any of the reasons for which God gave the commands He did in the first place. He knows they don't care about the truth, which is precisely why He takes them back to God into the beginning and reminds them that God's Word is sovereign over them and their desires to use the Scriptures for their own gain. He's teaching His disciples about following Him, about who He is. And listen, remember this. I think this is important. Jesus didn't bring up this topic they did. Jesus did not come to earth with an axe to grind over people that have made a mess in their marriages. He's not walking around saying, you know what's wrong with this place? You guys divorce and remarry too much. And yes, the, the case can be 
irrevocably, indisputably made that a society is weaker when its marriage units are failing. Absolutely. That's, but I'm saying, just remember this. Jesus didn't walk around with an axe to grind about this. They asked him. They brought it up. He said, all right, you want to talk about it? Let's go back further than Deuteronomy and talk about it then. If you want to talk about it, we'll talk about it. Right? They don't understand Jesus. They don't understand mercy. They don't understand this about God because here's the thing. Okay? There is a truth about marriage that has not yet been revealed in redemptive history as of this moment in the ministry of Jesus. There's something that has not been revealed yet. Did you know that? There's something about marriage that Jesus revealed later to the Apostle Paul that must now shape our whole view of marriage, period. In Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, Paul is talking about marriage. He reveals that this mystery Jesus is talking about of a man leaving his father and mother and holding fast to his wife so that they become one flesh. Paul says this mystery is profound. That's part of the reason we don't really get the marriage commitment because it's profound. Something is happening that's more profound than even the coming together of two fleshes into one. There's something that goes deeper even than the intimacy that God designed in marriage. Paul calls it a mystery because its meaning was unveiled finally by the Holy Spirit to Paul when he said that it, the one flesh reality of marriage, refers to Christ and the church. Why did God create marriage and intimacy? Why does God hold marriage as so sacred that nothing should break it apart? Beloved, because it's a means by which God displays what His Son has done for sinners that every married couple shows, whether they intend to or not. Do you know why divorce is so horrible of a thing and something God doesn't desire under any circumstance? Because Jesus does not want His spouse, the church, ever thinking He is going to leave her, even if it's justified. And it is. Every day. Everybody in this room, divorced or not, remarried or not, needs to hear this. Everybody. We break our commitment to our divine husband every time we sin. You realize that? We commit adultery every time we sin. That's what God calls it. That's the witness of Hosea. That's the witness of Ezekiel and Jeremiah. That sin, God sees as adultery. On our part, every person in this room, from the pulpit to the pew to the balcony, is an adulterer in the eyes of God. Do you realize this? Nobody needs to be holding anything over their heads anymore. Now we're all on the level playing field, divorced or not, faithful in our marriages or not. Right now we're all on the same field. We are adulterers. We are sinners. Every time we worship something other than Him, we're forgetting that we belong to Him. We're betraying our vows. We're cheating on Him every single time we do it. Which means Jesus has every right to leave us for our constant spiritual infidelity, which is what sin is. And here's the thing we need to know. In spite of that, in light of that, knowing that He isn't going anywhere. He isn't going anywhere. He keeps His promises. He's not leaving us. Beloved, He's not leaving us. Which means the mercy of God. God doesn't even grant Himself the concession He grants to you and I in cases of adultery. It's unbelievable. It's the mercy of God that's meant to be seen in marriage. That's why it's so sacred. That's why it's so sacred. It's a testament to the love of Jesus for sinners in the gospel, even when unbelievers marry each other. Look, they're not doing it to glorify God. It's not done out of faith. But the one flesh union of marriage is a pronouncement to the universe of the love that Christ has for his church. God has made sure there will be a witness. If we're all silenced, the rocks will cry out. If marriage won't glorify God, intimacy will, right? He, he, he won't lose. He won't lose. Isn't that amazing? To, to stay together and faithful to one another as one flesh testifies to one thing by God's design, whether that's intended or not, the love of Jesus for His church. 
who are all adulterous wives. Every single one of us. See, you, you mean to tell me that I'm committing adultery against God every time I sin? Yep. Why are you telling me that? So that you realize how much mercy you need and how much you have. Not so that you'll keep on sinning, but so when you sin, you won't bail. All right? There's no husband like this. None. None. If I love Christy half as much as I felt in my heart, I wouldn't hurt her. And I do. I don't want to. I, I don't do it all the time. Like I'm, I, I don't mean like I'm... I'm just saying like I... I love her with everything I am. And it doesn't make me less selfish. Right? The mercy of Jesus... That's all we have to talk about. The mercy of Jesus. Marriage is about Jesus and his unfailing, overcoming, all-consuming, relentless, loyal, faithful, perfect, never-ending love for a bride that isn't nearly as loyal as he is. That's why it matters so much. So, beloved, when you hear Jesus speak about the sanctity and the value of marriage, understand he's not just a stickler for keeping your promises that's the, he's your savior. And through marriage, even when it's difficult, he wants to remind us of his love. Beloved, don't run from Jesus this morning. Don't run from him. Don't run from this kind of love because nobody else has it. No one else is this faithful. No other spouse, no other lover is so true. And he will not leave you or forsake you. And he stays with you no matter what the person you're married to does to you. For him, his blood has bound him to us. And for him, there is allowed no concession by his own decree. He will never divorce you. He will never divorce you. And in this, we find our hope as we live flesh on flesh with another sinner in this world. When it gets hard to stay together, and it will, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir in some sense, right? So many of you are older than me. I don't, you don't need me to talk to you like I'm your dad. But, but look, it's hard. Marriage is hard. It's, it's two sinners in close proximity 24-7. And then you put kids in there. There are going to be problems. There are going to be difficulties. But in this, the love of Jesus. In other words, our hope does not come from being able to keep our promises. Our hope does not come from coming to the end of our lives and saying, even though it was hard, I kept my vows. Our hope is that Christ will not divorce us. That's the fuel for everything. That's the fuel. If he won't leave me, then I, I won't leave you. That's how we need to be praying, right? It, When it gets hard to stay together, look to Christ and remember He will always stay with you. It's only in the gospel that the marriage of two sinners to one another has any hope whatsoever. It's only in the gospel. If you come to me for marriage counseling and you are free to do so, we're going to talk about the gospel. We're going to talk about the gospel. Not, oh, men are from Mars and ladies are from Venus. And So if you both write down ten things you love about each other and buy each other candy every once in a while, no, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Yeah, that's that's not the way it was meant to be. If Jesus can reconcile us to God, He most certainly can reconcile us to one another even when the wounds are too deep to imagine. You remember, as you consider your life, that Jesus Christ, your Savior, knows what that feels like. He was cut deep, beloved, betrayed by his own friend, kissed on the cheek. Sometimes, and this is how I'll close, sometimes Christians have problems with cremation. So what are you talking about? What does that have to do with this? People say, they might say it's a sin to destroy your body like that when Christ means to raise you up. And 
so on and so forth. And so if you're just ashes, you're really kind of being disrespectful to what God designs to do and what can be done for you then. That's a strange limitation to put on the Almighty, isn't it? So if a believer was burned to ashes at the stake, they have no hope for resurrection. If a believer sank on the Titanic, maybe decomposed, disappeared, do they have no hope for the resurrection? Does God forget that they existed because their body's gone? Maybe they died in a plane crash or in an explosion. What's my point here? Beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ has the power to put even scattered ashes and decomposed bodies back together. So don't think for one moment that he can't put you back together when your past haunts you and you're sure you've done irreparable damage. And maybe you have in the eyes of the world and your spouse, but not to Christ. Christ repairs everything. At the end, he will say, behold, I am making all things new. We always say there's no crying in heaven, and that's basically correct. But it also says he will wipe our tears away. Somebody's crying. I think, I think that's all it is, that one of the most amazing things about heaven will be the inability to feel the shame of what we did here. Jesus will wipe your tears away. Don't ever forget that. Don't think for one moment he is not holding you in the midst of a situation you can't see a way out of. Don't think he can't make you whole. If the life you live in your marriage is so hard you don't know what to do. He loves his bride and as sure as the sun will rise, he will come for you. Trust Him. Live where you are, as you are right now. You're not being called to go back and fix anything. You've been forgiven, you who are in Christ. You can be forgiven, you who are not. Where else would you go? To whom else would you flee for salvation but to this husband? We can't change the past. He doesn't expect us to. Beloved, Jesus Christ is the only truly faithful husband who will be united to his bride forever. And we rest in this, beloved. We rest in this. Earthly marriage will end. Remember? As it was always intended to, it will end. So it's not the ultimate thing in the universe. Right? It will end. When it's swallowed up by the true marriage of Jesus to his church. So look to Christ and know that that reception, beloved, will last forever. Literally forever. More than we could ever imagine. And yes, every tear will be wiped away. Beloved, we're a mess. We're just a mess. And oh, how he loves you and me.